One of the amazing things about being a parent is watching your children grow. In our family, we have developed a tradition uh, of taking pictures of our children in what we call the red chair. It's a, it's a chair that's literally red or more maroon that's in the corner of our living room. And we take pictures of them periodically when they're younger, take them every month, uh, just to visually remember the growth that takes place in their lives. And it's really been quite amazing not only to see their physical growth, but also to see them grow in various abilities, such as their ability to walk or their ability to pedal a bike. Uh, it's, it's really fun to watch them be able to talk for the first time and to verbally communicate more and more effectively. And not only is that fun to watch that process, but sometimes it is literally funny. Uh, this last week, Shelley wrote a blog post. She keeps a blog that kind of chronicles what's going on in our family. But she wrote a blog post uh, about some of the humor, humor, <clears throat> excuse me, humorous things that our son Micaiah has said over the last few months. And I want to share a few of them with you because they kind of typify what it's like for someone who is learning not to speak, learning to communicate verbally. And you may have experienced some of these yourself if you have children or have been around children. But for instance, one time a couple months ago, uh, we received some dumplings, some Chinese dumplings from a good friend of ours, uh, especially for tahila, but I had a few as well. And Micaiah was telling, I think it was one of our sets of parents, that tahila had dumplings. But he didn't quite understand what the word dumplings means, so he told them, tahila ate ducklings. And we had to correct him, no, he, she did not eat ducklings, she ate dumplings. A little difference there. Uh, Micaiah loves to be complimentary of people. He also loves to be complimentary of himself. Uh, we oftentimes joke that he loves to self-congratulate, um, praise himself. But he also loves to pass out compliments to others. And so one time at the dinner table a couple months ago, he turns to Shelly, uh, his mom, and says, Mommy, you're such a sweetie pie. <laughs> he, he turns to me, says, Dad, you're a pumpkin. And then he turns to Tahila and says, Tahila is a roast. <laughs> and, I mean, in his mind that made sense, but it just shows that, you know what, there's some more maturity process that has to take place there because hopefully by the time he's dating someone or married, he learns not to call them a roast. Um, because, you know, that probably won't go over super well, but we know the intent behind it. Or sometimes we, you know, or oftentimes we're trying to teach our kids to pray. And so we pray with them at meals, pray with them before bedtime. Um, and at various other times, such as when there's a lot of disobedience going on, going on, we talk with them about, you know what, Micaiah, you really just need to pray that God will help you learn to obey better. And this gets a variety of different responses. Sometimes he genuinely prays. He, he does enjoy praying. But other times he's kind of in an honorary mood, and so he just starts saying gibberish. Um, or other times he'll sit there and be silent. Now, sometimes he is kind of praying to himself, and he, he does that. But other times you can tell he's not praying, he's just sitting there kind of silent looking at us. And at one point, um, actually we've heard this several different times, we point that out, Micaiah, you really need to pray. And he says, I did. I prayed in Spanish. And we're like, no, you did not pray in Spanish. You need to pray in English, pray out loud so we can hear you at this point. So one other story, I mean, there's a whole blog post that's probably like that long of these things. Uh, but one other one, Micaiah and Shelley were in a conversation one day, and Micaiah out of the blue said, I drive a frog truck. He's very creative, has a good imagination. So he said, I drive a frog truck. Shelley asked, why? 
Well, people want frogs in their house. Why do they want frogs in their house? To stay healthy. Well, shall I ask, do they eat them? Yes, they do. Shall I ask, how do they eat them? Well, you take a frog and say, it will be okay. Then you stick it in your mouth and eat it. I I think at least from the frog's perspective, that's not going to be so okay. And personally, I would not really appreciate that either. But you know what? This just shows how it's kind of fun being around children when they're just learning for the first time, whether it's learning to speak, learning to walk. And at times, Shelly and I get kind of reflective, just thinking about, you know what? There's going to come a time where our kids don't want to cuddle with us anymore, where there won't, won't be the joyful horsey rides around the living room, uh, where they won't be butchering grammar as much anymore and making up random words. Like uh, this, a week or two ago, um, Micaiah's gotten to the sports phase of he always wanted to wear shirts with a, a sports ball on them, whether it's a football, baseball, soccer ball, something like that. I'm kind of surprised he's not wearing a ball this morning. A what? A football? Yeah, you like footballs on there. Um, I came downstairs after getting ready, and he said, I'm a sporter. I guess meaning an athlete. But, you know, he makes up words. There's going to come a time where that doesn't take place any longer. And, and you know, we get kind of reflective about that. It's kind of sad to think about, you know, they're going to grow up. But then we think about the alternative. What would be the alternative to, to growing up? The alternative would be to stop growing, to, or maybe even to, to revert back to a previous stage. Think about how sad it would be to have a four-year-old who hasn't developed the ability yet to walk or to talk or to have, say, someone who's eight or nine years old still not be able to put on their own clothes or you have an older child, who is, or a, even an adult, who, ha, who hasn't passed the reasoning capacity of a three-year-old. I mean, these are realities in our broken world. And if that happened in our family, we definitely still love our children and definitely still care for them every way we could. But the reality is that God designed children to grow. Grow not just physically, but also to grow mentally and socially and spiritually. Uh, Grow in their love for other people. Grow in a variety of different ways. And just as God created children to grow, so he has created Christians to grow as well. If you see a child who is not growing, there's, there's some issue going on. There's some problem. In the same way, if you see a Christian who over the course of time is not exhibiting much growth, there's a significant problem there as well. And the growth we're talking about is not just growth in terms of increased church attendance or growth in in head knowledge about the Bible. The growth that we're talking about is a transformation of character, a transformation of your passion for God, a growing love for the people around you, a growing sense of purpose um, in terms of how you're investing in the kingdom of God. And that if you look back over your life and over the last year or the last five years or the last ten years, if you don't see some sort of consistent growth, I mean, Christian growth kind of goes up and down at times, but if if there's not a general trend of growth, there's a problem. And like I said, we're talking about growth not just in religious activities or head knowledge about the Bible. We're talking about growth in, in spiritual maturity and character, growth in allowing the gospel to transform us from the inside out. And this morning, I want to look head on uh, uh, at this issue of how do we grow spiritually? What does that really look like in our lives? I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can turn to the, or grab a Bible from the pew or the chair in front of you. 
We're in a series right now called Gospel Fluency, and this series is all about how do we grow in fluency in the gospel. It's about uh, the gospel, good news of Jesus Christ, of what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. But we're talking about how do we become fluent in the gospel, kind of like you become fluent in another language, meaning it flows well, it's smooth, it's just the second nature to you, you've internalized it that much. We want to become fluent in the gospel in the same way. And I recognize that this idea of the gospel, even though we talk about it a lot around here, at times the idea of the gospel can be kind of abstract. We wonder, what is the gospel? Now, there are many, many different ways to describe the gospel. If you're fluent in the gospel, you recognize you can look at it from different angles, even as the videos we show before the sermons each week illustrate. But this last week I was reading an e-book on my Kindle while I was putting Micaiah to bed, and I came across a definition of the gospel that I really, really like. Um, I mean... Don't know if I'll keep using it for a long time or not. We'll just, time will tell. We'll see. But I really like this definition of the gospel. So let me just kind of lay this out here just to give us a picture of what we're talking about this morning. According to this definition, the gospel is the announcement of the good news that Jesus has redeemed us, is renewing us, and ultimately will restore all things. And the reason I like this definition of the gospel is that it's not merely describing the gospel as some sort of get-out-of-hell-free card, that, that Christ died for you so that you could go to heaven rather than hell when you died. It is touching that on that reality when it talks about Jesus has redeemed us, but it goes beyond that as well. It talks about how the gospel is transforming us, it's renewing us currently from the inside out. It also points to the fact that, that the gospel, the effects of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection don't only impact people, Humanity, they also impact the entire world, uh, the entire broken universe, that God will restore all things at some point because of the gospel. So that is one way to view the gospel here. And what we're talking about today is really working out the implications of the gospel in all aspects of our life. And that is a huge topic. So I'm going to uh, take a moment now just to ask for God's guidance, then we're going to dive into Philippians 2. Father, we thank you for the gospel. The good news that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ into this world to die for us. We thank you that that has implications not only for our own personal lives, uh, for eternity, but also for our own personal lives here throughout this lifetime, and also for the entire universe, Lord, which currently is broken, but you will renew one day. And I pray that now as we open Philippians 2, that you will help us see with fresh eyes um, and with a fresh heart what it means to apply the gospel to our entire lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 16. But before we turn there, I want to just set the stage for what we're looking at. Um, this passage is not a standalone passage. It's really a continuation of what we started looking at last week. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this idea of living in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ is not an attempt to earn your salvation, but it's really seeking to apply the gospel to our lives in a, in a way that reflects the gospel. And specifically how Paul is applying this last week, which will continue today, is he's applying it in terms of how we treat others, that Christ's great love for us and his forgiveness of us, his patience with us, affects our love and forgiveness and patience and servant-mindedness of those around us. Because we have to recognize that Jesus did not just come to give us a, a bunch of moral platitudes like the golden rule saying, well, do this, don't do that, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. He came to give us life, 
to give us new life through the gospel and to enable us to be transformed through the gospel. And that's what we see here in this entire passage we're looking at. So today we're picking up in verse 12. Um, I'm going to read a couple verses here and then we're going to talk about it. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we see the main idea here is Paul is saying you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling can be a bit of a confusing idea because it sort of sounds like Paul is saying you need to work for your salvation. You need to earn it in some way. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not advocating some sort of salvation by your good works here. In fact, to see that, all we have to do is look at other places in his writings. I mean, he writes about this in pretty much all of his letters. I think, for instance, of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he's very clear, you aren't saved by your good works. You're saved by grace, and then the faith by which you receive that gift of grace. So it's not by works. And this is a very constant theme throughout pretty much everything that Paul writes. That salvation is by faith and grace, not by works. So Paul here is certainly not contradicting himself. He's not saying that, that we need to work to earn our salvation. Remember, part of the gospel is that Christ, through faith in him, has redeemed us. It's not like God did 75% of the work and then he's saying, okay, the last 25% is up to you with your good works. He's not saying that. The gospel is that that Christ has redeemed us fully, 100%, if we receive his his gift of grace by faith. So so Paul's not advocating here some sort of salvation by works when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he is saying is that we need to work out the implications of our salvation in our entire lives and everything that we do. The implications of our salvation we, we sometimes have events in our lives that, that really shape us in many different ways. They aren't some sort of compartmentalized events that, that we can say, okay, this is um, something that's taking place over here. It doesn't affect the rest. I think, for instance, of marriage. That when a couple says, I do, there's going to be a, a, a process of change that's generated from that commitment of marriage that changes pretty much everything about them in some way or another, or at least it influences everything about them. For instance, when you are married to someone, part of the implication there is that that you have to take into consideration your marriage if you are looking at your schedule. Once you're married, you have to begin to take into consideration your marriage when you're talking about what you're going to do on the weekend or what your future dreams are or how you're going to engage in your hobbies or in your social life. You have to take into mind the, considera- the implications of marriage and how you make financial decisions. You're no longer making financial decisions yourself, but as a team. Marriage has a lot of different implications. In addition to, uh, for instance, how you relate to other members of the opposite sex. I mean, it's not going to be quite the same after you're married. You, you, you have your one and only spouse. They, they are different than every, every other member of the opposite sex. So marriage is an example of how you have an event that takes place and a reality in a person's life which has implications in pretty much everything you do. 
And the gospel is the same way, that when the gospel comes into our life, God's intention is that it's not compartmentalized over on the side, that you say, okay, from um, 10.30 to 11.35 on Sunday morning, I am going to be devoted to the gospel, and maybe during a Bible study during the week, but the rest of the time, I'm good. I mean, you don't say that with marriage. You don't say in marriage, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on being married from 6 to 7 p.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And the rest of the time, I'm going to live like I'm not married. That's not how it works. It, it affects all of your life. Same with the gospel. Unfortunately, sometimes we try to compartmentalize the gospel and say, well, it's for this part over here, but not for the rest. There's a story uh, back from Constantine. Um, Constantine was the Roman emperor uh, back in the 300s. Constantine became a Christian in 312 A.D., and at, right after that, he legalized Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. And that was a big turning point for Christianity. It had some positives, also had a lot of negative, unintended consequences. Um, but as he legalized Christianity, it was a significant turning point in how Christians related there. But one of the things that happened very soon after Constantine became a Christian, at least according to tradition, is that he required his entire Roman army to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, that's just tradition. We don't know for sure if that's true, but, but a part of the tradition as well that's been passed down to us is that there are some soldiers there that as they were baptized, as they were immersed in the water, they kept their arms up above the water as a symbolic way of saying, okay, I belong to Christ, but my arms are still mine to do with what I want. And specifically, they were thinking in terms of battle. That my, my arms, my sword hand is not going to submit to Christ. I am still free to kill anyone I want to, however ruthlessly I want to, because my arm has not been baptized into Christ. The rest of my body has, the rest of me is, does belong to Jesus, but not that arm. Or I think also of a joke that some Christians use today, uh, especially Christians who have a tendency to speed a little bit too much on the highway. I, I sometimes hear people say, well, you know... My right foot just isn't fully sanctified yet. I mean, it just gets kind of out of control. The rest of me wants to be devoted to Christ, but that right foot that pushes that gas pedal, it, it still needs to grow in its holiness. Uh, my salvation hasn't quite worked its way down there. But these types of ideas of, of whether it's holding your arms out of the water in baptism, whether it's saying my right foot is not fully sanctified yet, it's not yet obedient to um, the teaching of, of the Bible, that we should obey earthly authorities if they don't, um, if they don't contradict Scripture. I mean, that's not the way that Paul is talking about here. He's saying work out your salvation, work out the implications of the gospel with fear and trembling. I mean, think about frosting a cake. When you frost a cake, you don't put frosting just on one corner and, and call it good. No, you put frosting over the whole thing. If you're washing a car, you don't pull out the soap and the water and the hose and wash one fender and maybe a headlight and say, okay, it's good. You wash the whole thing, don't you? It's the same with the gospel. That when the gospel comes into your life, God's intention is that it would impact absolutely everything we are and everything we do and everything we say. That the implications of the gospel are worked out holistically in our lives. Now Paul here gives a couple of clarifications of what it looks like to work out our, the implications of our salvation. One of the things he says is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying there is that we should not be flippant about our spiritual growth. Now, 
you know, it, it's, it's easy just to kind of be flipping about that. I mean, I remember back when I was in college, um, I saw some Christians, guys especially, wearing these t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. I mean, nice thought. You kind of laugh at it. But Jesus isn't our hum- homeboy. I, I know of books, uh, especially for teen girls, that talk about Jesus being our boyfriend. Now, for guys like me, that doesn't quite apply as well. But, but this idea of Jesus being your boyfriend, I, I see the mentality behind it, and I, I kind of agree with the idea of wanting to, Jesus to be your primary focus in life, the one that you're running to for, for care and compassion and, and, and nurture and stuff like that. I agree with that. But if we only focus on Jesus as our boyfriend, if we only focus on, on Jesus' kindness and his compassion, those things are true. It can be a great source of comfort, but we still miss a big part of who Jesus is. Because Jesus, he is called the Lamb of God, but he's also called the Lion of Judah. We see in the triumphal entry when Jesus was entering Jerusalem on a donkey who is entering very humbly. But we also see in Scripture that when Jesus returns one day in the future, he's not going to be riding a humble donkey at that point. He's going to be riding a white war horse. We, we look here in Philippians chapter 2, right before our passage, it says that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see here that, that Jesus, he is kind and compassionate. We, we are called to, to draw comfort from that and draw close to him. But also the, the fact that Jesus is God that he is the Lion of Judah, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that should cause us to not be flippant in our spiritual growth. But they, we should take it very, very seriously. And I think it's important sometimes that we do a gut check spiritually and ask, how devoted am I to growing closer to Christ? And if we did that gut check, many of us would find, you know what, realistically, I devote a lot more time and energy and passion and focus to my fantasy football team, to making a great team. Or I devote a lot more time and energy and focus and passion to my crafting, whether it's card making or scrapbooking or, or crocheting or knitting or stuff like that. I devote a, a lot more of my time and energy and passion in life to my job, to being successful in my workplace. I'm even a lot more devoted to keeping updated on what's going on in the Facebook world than I am to following Christ. We have to do a gut check. We have to ask, am I really devoted to following Christ or am I just making excuses saying, you know what, I'm busy right now. When, I, when my life slows down a little bit, that's when I'll begin to really dedicate myself to Christ. Or my friends might think I'm kind of weird if I start uh, really trying to apply the gospel to my life. I don't know if I really want to do that. But we need to put those excuses aside and get serious because, I mean, Jesus is serious about our growth. Paul's serious about our growth. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now there's a second clarification here as well that Paul gives us about our spiritual growth. And he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we have this promise that God is working in us to help us to grow. He's the, he's the power behind that growth. I think there's oftentimes a misconception in the Christian life that, that if we really want to grow spiritually, we need to work really, really hard. And by working hard, that will help us to grow. Now, it does take some degree of effort on our part, but the effort is not that we supply the power to grow. It's God who's already at work in us to help us to grow. 
Think, for instance, of the difference between a paddle boat and a sailboat. And a paddle boat, I mean, they're kind of fun. Um, and when I see a paddle boat on a lake, I think, that looks like a lot of fun. I want to go, go around the lake or go across the lake or go over here and look at that. And paddle boats are really cool because you're out there, you're just providing your own power. But something happens over time that you get kind of tired, don't you? And oftentimes what happens to me is I get to the other side of the lake and my legs are tired. Um, my legs are cramping up because, you know, I have long legs and the pedals are not adjustable. And so you, you're kind of just cramped up in there in that boat. You get tired. You still have the whole journey all the way home. But that's the reality in a paddle boat because you're the one supplying your own power. And you compare a paddle boat to a sailboat. In a sailboat, you are not providing the power that's making you go. It's the wind that provides the power to push that sailboat along. And you aren't completely passive in the process. Your role is to adjust the sail, adjust the rudder, adjust the boat in such a way as to maximize the effects of the wind propelling the boat along. So it's not passive, but you're also not the one ultimately providing the power to move the boat. It's a sailboat that, that provides the picture for what spiritual growth looks like. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus said, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus says the work of the Holy Spirit is like the work of wind. That with wind, you can't see it. You can hear it sometimes as it blows through trees or stuff like that. You don't know where it came from or where it's going, but you see its effects. And it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. Where with the Holy Spirit, you don't know exactly what the Holy Spirit is going to do. But you know that he wants to work in us to help us to grow. And so our call is to really harness the power of the Holy Spirit simply by submitting to him, by, by aligning ourselves in such a way that the Holy Spirit is free to work inside of us rather than us hindering him through actions or attitudes that we have, uh, whether on purpose or on an accident. God wants to work in each one of us. Now, I want to move on in this passage to see an application that Paul makes um, out of this idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says in verses 14 through 16, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And it's really a beautiful picture here. A picture, think of a dark night sky. And he says that Christians, as we hold on to the gospel, as we internalize and live out the implications of the gospel in our lives, we're going to shine like stars in the universe. I mean, such a beautiful picture. But he says that one of the ways that we shine like stars is by applying the gospel in such a way that there's no longer a need to complain or to argue with others. And this makes complete sense in the context of Philippians 2, because Philippians 2 is all about um, how applying the gospel so that it affects our relationship with others. Remember last week we were looking at our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, that we should love, that we should serve in the same way that Jesus does, that that gospel is our motivation. And so here Paul says, don't complain. Don't argue with one another. Now, another way that you could translate this would be grumblings and disputes. Don't grumble. Don't dispute with one another. And, and when you translate it that way, which is a very faithful way to translate it, 
it, it really reminds us of Israel back as they were wandering in the desert after they came out of slavery in Egypt. And I think that Paul may have been remembering that as he wrote this when he said, don't complain, don't grumble, don't, don't argue, don't dispute. Because Israel, I mean, God was providing for them. They had just come out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, so they're no longer slaves, but they're free. They're wandering for 40 years in the desert, and God is providing for them. Yet they continue to complain and to grumble against God. And then they begin to argue and dispute with Moses, who was Israel's leader at that time. And Paul is saying, you know what, don't be like that. God is providing for you. He's already provided for you so much through the gospel. You don't have a need to complain. You don't have a need to grumble. You don't have a need to argue. Now, he's not saying that if we have a problem with someone or with something that we should just bottle up inside because we know from other parts of Scripture that he's very clear that we shouldn't bottle stuff up. If you have an issue with someone, go directly to them one-on-one. Deal with the issue. And it's not to get revenge or to get back at them in some way or to prove them wrong. It's to have reconciliation and resolution to the issue. That's peacemaking. That's not complaining. Complaining is when you're just seeking to vent, just to vent. When you aren't really seeking re- resolution or reconciliation, but you're just upset about something, you're letting it out there. I think of, um, think of Facebook. I mean, social media is great in many, many ways. Facebook has a lot of good things going on there. But Facebook has become a place where people have, have a public forum to vent their frustrations. It's complaining. They're not trying to resolve anything. They're just kind of airing it out there for everyone to see. In the midst of a world that that loves to complain, loves to argue, Paul reminds us that if we can apply the gospel to our lives and understand God's great love for us, understand that, you know what, we really don't need to complain because God God is taking care of us. Then we will shine like stars in the world. Last week I said that, you know what, we each are the most influential person in our own lives. We are the most influential person in our own lives because we are the ones who are talking to ourselves the most. The soundtrack of the thoughts that go through our minds is really what influences the way that we live. Uh, that if you are meditating on things that are, are good, positive things, odds are good the way that you speak and the way that you live is going to be very positive. If you're focusing on, on things that are very negative or critical or are complaining a lot in your mind, that's what's going to come out of your mouth too and that's the way you're going to live. There's a a computer term, um, especially in computer programming, that says gospel, or um, not gospel in. uh, It says garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage into a computer, whether it's just errors or whether it's just something that's completely illegible and incomprehensible, you're going to get garbage out in what the computer gives you. And it's the same way in our minds. If we're filling our minds with garbage, with things that aren't of God, that's what's going to come out as well for filling our minds with complaining and venting in unhealthy ways without actually addressing the issue, that's what's going to come out in our lives. Just as it's garbage in, garbage out, so is it gospel in, gospel out. If we make the gospel the soundtrack of our minds, if we are constantly just meditating on the gospel and thinking about the implications of the gospel for all parts of life, then what will come out in our words and our actions um, and in our entire lives will be gospel-oriented as well. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus, when he had to step off his heavenly throne and come to this world, he wasn't complaining about that. When Jesus had to carry our sins to the cross, he wasn't complaining about that. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He wasn't complaining. 
neither should we complain. So we see the gospel does have a, a very significant impact on the way that we live. And that as we apply the gospel to our lives, it is going to make us shine like stars in the universe. And the way that we do this, Paul says, is by holding firmly to the gospel. He says, you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. The word of life here is the gospel. Now, there's a Greek word behind that word hold out, or that phrase hold out. And it could also be translated to hold firmly. Either one is a legitimate translation of that word. But I think the context here in Philippians 2 gives more power to the idea of holding firmly to the gospel. If you hold firmly to the gospel, if you treasure it, if you make it a part of your life, that is when you are really going to shine. And we need to understand here that when Paul gives us commands like forgive each other, love each other, don't complain, don't argue, or any other command that you see in Scripture, the ultimate motivation there is not some sort of behavior modification. It's not saying, well, be good for goodness sake. It's saying, do these things because look at the gospel. The gospel is what motivates things. Paul is not talking here about behavior modification. He's talking about gospel transformation. As the gospel soaks into your life, as we apply the implications of the gospel to every aspect of our lives, then we will naturally and easily radiate the gospel. And our, our behavior, our lives will change, but only because of the work of God in our lives through the gospel. Now, we're talking a lot about gospel fluency here, and this is an idea that sounds nice, but sometimes it can still be a bit abstract. Now, on Sunday mornings here at the church, I'm leading a class, and, and in the class that I led just this morning, I came across a resource that I think would be very helpful for us in growing gospel fluency. There is a, a chart in, in our curriculum that contained a bunch of different gospel truths that apply to various areas of life. And I thought, you know what, that's incredibly helpful, not just for my class of 10 people or so, but it would be helpful for everyone, I think, to, to really get a hold of that and, and study it and stuff like that. And so basically I took that, that chart that was in that book and then I modified it and expanded it. I added an extra uh, column over here that talks about possible applications of this gospel truth. And I want to make it available to you. It's on our website under the sermon, um, the, the sermon page on our website. This sermon is not on there yet. The audio isn't on there yet because it's being recorded right now. But this document is already there. So if you want to check out this document, it's called Gospel Fluency Toolkit. It's a list of about 20 different passages of Scripture that talk about how the gospel influences and impacts all variety of areas of our lives. I encourage you to go to our website. It's on there now. It's called Gospel Fluency Toolkit. It's under today's sermon. But that's a resource for understanding in a fresh way how the gospel applies to every area of our life. Now, the reality is that God wants us to grow. Just as he designed children to grow, so he has designed Christians to grow as well. And as we talked about, God's already working in us. God's already given us the gospel. Our call is to, to cooperate with him, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us as he wants to. Now, sometimes we do hinder that work. I think of back on Labor Day weekend, my family was in town. My parents were in town. My sister and brother-in-law were in town. My niece and nephew were in town. My niece and nephew are roughly the same age as our kids. And it was a very chaotic, fun, busy weekend. And one of the things we figured out is that with four young kids... Everything um, takes a lot longer than you think it should. For instance, we're packing things up to go on a bike ride. It takes us 45 minutes. We're getting ready to go down to the beach. It takes us half an hour to get things ready just to go to the beach. 
And one of the main reasons was these two little one-year-old girls, my niece and my daughter, they, every time we were getting stuff together, putting it in bags, putting it in the stroller, putting it by the front door, well, those two little girls were there to unpack what we had just packed and pull it all over the house. They were hindering our progress in getting things done. And it's really the same thing that we oftentimes do in our lives in terms of what God is trying to do in us. That, that we sometimes inadvertently, sometimes more consciously, are making decisions and having attitudes and doing things that are hindering the work of God in our lives. My prayer for us is that we would be people who would stop blocking the work of God in our lives, but allow him to work in very powerful ways to transform us from the inside out as we work out the implications of the gospel in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for your great patience that you continue to extend to us. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we are thankful for this because we so easily fall short. We hear this call to grow spiritually and to devote ourselves to you. But when we are honest with ourselves, we recognize that so often we fall short. So often we are devoted to other things more than you. So thank you for your patience, Lord. Yet I do pray that you will help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we will take seriously this call to grow. This call to allow you to work in and through us, Lord. That we will grow as men and women who learn to apply the gospel to every area of our lives. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.